the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'm looking at rising mortgage interest rates and the continuing difficulties Irish aircraft lessers are having in recovering their planes from Russia. In a few moments, you'll hear Joe Brennan of the Irish Times explain why ICS Mortgages has decided to increase the rates on its fixed-rate home loans, and if other Irish lenders will follow suit. Later in the show, Simon Carswell of the Irish Times tells me about a retaliatory move by the Kremlin to ensure that aircraft leased from companies based in Ireland remain with Russian operators. This in spite of the country being subject to sanctions due to the war in Ukraine. But first to the Irish mortgage market. On Monday, ICS Mortgages announced increases for new three- and five-year fixed-rate loans. So is this an isolated case? Or is it the start of a trend among Irish lenders to increase mortgage rates? Joe Brennan covered the story for the Irish Times, and I began by asking him why ICS was increasing its rates at this time. Yeah, if you look at the overall market, the overall market kind of trend has been down since kind of the middle of the last kind of decade, certainly um, Mortgage rates, both uh, standard variable and fixed rates, were around the 4% back in 2015. If you look at the most recent figures from the central bank, you're talking about interest rates, the average interest rate about 2.75, across the board in January. Now, all that's double what the European average is at the moment. But the real kind of driver has been kind of the fixed rate kind of um, market. 80% of, of lending in, in recent years, and certainly last year, has been in fixed as opposed to standard variable rates. And the real drivers of that have been the, the, the non-banks that have come into the market in recent times. If you look at the non-banks, so in the last three or four years, you've seen there were no kind of non-bank lenders. In the last three or four years, we've seen the likes of Dilusk, we've seen Finance Ireland, and more recently, we've seen Avant Money, which is owned by uh, Spanish bank, uh, bank Inter, get into the market. And they predominantly finance themselves ultimately in the, the money markets and the bond markets. And you've seen kind of the, the rates of uh, money market borrowing costs increase in, in recent times and the expectation that the ECB will move on two fronts as it looks to take in inflation or take down inflation or, or tackle inflation. Uh, one is that they, the expectation of the ECB or the ECB has signaled it's winding down its um, extraordinary kind of bond buying program, which has kept interest rates lower in recent years. But also it's made it clear that even though you have the war in Ukraine and that's led to a further spike in inflation above and beyond what we saw last year with the general inflation brought on by a reopening of the economy, that the ECB has said that it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's still of a mind to accelerate a tightening of monetary policy, which has led to the expectations that interest rates will start rising in, the, in Europe from, from later on this year. And that's led to a spike in certainly in kind of near to medium term uh, interest rates on the money markets, which is where the non-bank lenders fund themselves. And that's the kind of where they've been caught. Okay, Joe, so what's the story with uh, what we would call the traditional lenders, the high street lenders, Bank of Ireland, AIB, Permanent, TSB, also Bank and KBC are leaving the market, so we'll set them aside. Where are they at? What are the chances of them increasing their rates uh, as a result of ICS's move? Yeah, so the main banks, they still are, they still account for about 85% of lending, including the two banks that are exiting. So if you exclude the two banks that are exiting the market, you're talking that the mainstream banks, the main three banks are about 70% 
of mortgage lending last year. Now, unlike the non-bank lenders, they are funded primarily these days, maybe not historically, not certainly not at the time before the crisis where they were highly reliant on, on wholesale markets or international bond markets for funding. But these days, the banks have excess deposits and the deposits uh, are basically for, for you or myself saving. We're getting zero at best. And if you have above a million in, in, in the banks, you're being charged. Uh, basically, the, the, the negative rate that the ECB is charging the banks to hold on to their excess cash is being charged to uh, the, the, the savers, the, the, the larger savers with a million, a million plus in their uh, bank accounts. But these banks, so they're not exposed to the same kind of pressures, the same wholesale pressures, the wholesale funding pressures as, say, the non-bank lenders. But ultimately, when you see the ECB, ECB moving, um, they will, you know, will face pressure themselves to start increasing uh, interest rates. So you can see that towards the back end of this year, but they would have less of an excuse to do so in the near term. Joe, on ECB rates, uh, we know that the Bank of England has already moved on interest rates and the Fed has uh, very clearly flagged that it's going to move. What's the position with the ECB and does war in Europe uh, make it more likely that it won't move even though you know we're seeing energy prices soar and all sorts of cost of living and inflation pressures in the market, and, and it would be a natural response from a central bank to increase rates in this kind of an inflationary environment. Yeah, so if you look at Bank of England, they're expected to move tomorrow for the third time in four months. They've gone from 0.1%, they're expected to go to 0.75% tomorrow. You have the Fed uh, later on this evening expected to move on its rates for the first time in, I'd say, about three years. ECB has been more reticent. It's, it's had a view that the spike we saw in inflation last year was more kind of a temporary thing as economies begin to open again after the pandemic. I think they've been caught off on that. I think they've had to ease back their language on that. And certainly they're, they're moving. So they're moving on two fronts. They're, they're easing back their, their bond buying program. But there is an expectation in the market now that the guts of 0.5 percentage points of interest rate uh, increases will happen in the eurozone um, by the end of this year. Remember that the base rate in, in, in Europe is at zero, has been at zero since 2016. So the expectation is that they will start the, the tightening round by the end of this year. Joe, one of the interesting elements of the ICS interest rate increases is that it's being focused on or it's hitting those uh, with high equity levels harder uh, than others. And I'm just wondering whether uh, perhaps those people are soft targets. Yeah, I suppose... Yeah, I suppose, um, look, they were the ones certainly that uh, got the preferential rates or were targeted with preferential rates when the non-bank lenders really came into the market. If you look at the likes of Dillisk, I mean, it moved in August of last year to match the best rate in the market, which was being offered by Avant Money, which is 1.95% for a mortgage for a, for a high level of, of, of equity. Um, so it's only natural that you know, that the ones that got the preferential rates will probably be most at, at risk for uh, rising rates in the near term. Now, Dillisk has spoken very, um, uh, spoken of increasing its market share here. It wants to be very aggressive. It wants a 10% market share. Fergal McGrath was on uh, Inside Business recently talking about this. Just wondering, uh, given that they've moved their rates upwards and so far we haven't seen movement for, from any of their rivals, does that knock on the head the chance of them getting to 10% in the near term? 
Yeah, so what's happened, you know, in the latest round, it's, it's really kind of just unwound the rates, you know, the rate cuts they brought in in August of last year, which kind of matched the lowest rates that were in the market generally. And now all banks have, all lenders would have certain parts of the mortgage market where they would have preferential rates. But in terms of the, the, the mere to, near to medium term fixed uh, interest rates, uh, Dillisk was was matching the best in the market. It has just unwound that. It's still relatively competitive in the space, even in the space, even in the five to three to five year uh, fixed income, uh, fixed uh, mortgage rates, uh, where it's increased, it's still in a competitive, in competitive space. Uh, but yeah, certainly, um, Dillisk, if you look at the, 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 the non-bank lenders, it started off at zero uh, market share um, uh, four, four years ago, and have increased now. Last year, they went from about 5%, tripled, almost tripled their market share across the board from 5% to almost 15%, basically taking up the slack as Ulster Bank uh, and, and, and KBC were, were exiting the market, and their market share fell by the same kind of percentage, about 10 percentage points. So they kind of have been filling in, in that gap. So it depends on where the rest of the market goes, where their pricing remains over, whether they have to increase, they see that they have to increase their, their rates further in the foreseeable future, that they still you know, can target that, that 10% over the next two to three years, certainly as, as the stock of lending is, is being taken up more by or has been taken up more by uh, non-bank lenders. Yeah, but why would you why would you take a loan with, with ICS if there's a cheaper one on the market, given it's a fixed rate? You know, I mean... There's nothing. There's nothing special about uh, a loan, is there? Uh, you know, a mortgage loan, providing you meet you you meet the qualifying criteria. And I know it can be a pain for some people um, applying for loans with some lenders. Sometimes some lenders are a bit tighter in terms of their qualifying criteria. But at the end of the day, it's a it's a rate. It's money out of your pocket every month. And why wouldn't you just go for the lower rate? Well, certainly, look at the lowest rate is Avant Money. Uh, so that is one point that remains at one point nine five. They've come back to us. We just asked them, are they looking to 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 what they're looking in terms of their price? And they say they won't pre-announce anything. So we've no indication as to where they will go with their own kind of rates. But certainly, if you're looking at a, a pure rate at a similar kind of. 40% uh, equity uh, or deposit to, to put down, that is the lowest rate in the market. Actually, if you, if you look at, interestingly, we see, saw Bank of Ireland, um, you see the two main mainstream banks or the mainstream banks are looking to get more into the uh, green uh, lending space. They have their own kind of green lending targets. And whether by design or just fortuitous timing, uh, Bank of Ireland came out yesterday and announced basically the lowest rate in the market. It's lowered its um, rate on its uh, on fixed, I can't remember the time frame, uh, but it, it, the lowest rate, it's gone from 2% to 1.9% for a green mortgage, a high value green mortgage. In other words, a green mortgage that would have at least 300,000 uh, of, of, of a loan. Yeah, sure, of course. Uh, there are qualifying criteria around green mortgages, aren't there? And um it can be tricky if you're if you're buying a secondhand house to, to meet those uh, criteria. Joe, can I just ask you about Ulster Bank and and KBC? Where are we at in terms of their exit strategies from the market? Let's maybe start with Ulster Bank. Yeah, so look, Ulster Bank has agreed the sale of uh, basically two major portfolios, uh, basically two thirds of its. 20 billion plus uh, loan book as it stood before it decided to uh, get out of Ireland. 
it's decided it's selling off uh, about 4.2 billion of uh, commercial and business loans to, uh, or it's planning to, to sell it off to AIB subject to uh, competition approval and also looking to sell off uh, what will be about 7 billion of mortgages and, and small business loans to permanent TSB. Both are subject to uh, competition approval uh, and the competition uh, CCPC, the competition authorities are conducting a, a kind of in-depth investigations into those uh, planned loan sales to, to to make sure to see if they're distorting competition in the market. So that could take a while yet. There's still an outstanding uh, six to seven billion of a tracker loan book uh, that's owned by Ulster Bank. We have AIB. We have also two international kind of uh, finance providers, uh, MNG and PIMCO, uh, also circling that portfolio. If they, if either of those got hold of the portfolio, they would most likely do what the non-bank lenders do and refinance the loans in the bond markets, in the securitization markets. KBC did a deal to sell off um, its almost its entire loan book to, to Bank of Ireland, about nine billion of, of mortgages. That again is subject to uh, competition approval. It's it's going through uh, going through that as well. So we'll have to see how the competition authorities uh, look into that. The interesting thing about uh, the influx of non-bank lenders is, if you look at the the, the flow of new lending uh, last year, they're about fifteen percent gone up from five percent. They've been picking up the slack from Ulster Bank and KBC, and that in itself would could. Um, help the case of of the, the the mainstream banks that are looking to acquire the KBC and the Ulster Bank loans. And what about current account holders, Joe, particularly in the case of Ulster Bank, because Ulster Bank has been in this market for a long, long time, heavily embedded. I think at one point they probably had about a million customers there, thereabouts. So what what happens in the case of current accounts? Yeah, so look at deposits and current accounts. I mean, if you look at current accounts and deposit money that was on uh, Ulster Bank, it, it's, its overall deposit kind of figure fell by 1.4 billion last year as people, you know, some of the more savvy or more aware people started moving on their uh, business elsewhere. Um, but it still had the guts of about 19 billion of current account and Sabres money. And over the next while, it's expected that Ulster Bank will start writing to uh, current account holders uh, from the end of this month, giving them, it'll be kind of a rolling basis, giving them each of the categories that it starts writing to six months to uh, move elsewhere. But certainly the problem with the banks, you know, unlike uh, before the last crisis where banks had uh, too few deposits, they now have excess deposits and, and they're facing, you know, additional uh, deposits coming their way uh, in the foreseeable future. Um, the other problem is just in terms of for for households is is sorting out standing orders, direct debits, uh, and all of that. It's it's going to be a a, a pretty big headache uh, for 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 households and also for 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 banks and utility uh, company providers who would have those uh, direct debit uh, arrangements with 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 customers. And Joe, for a current account holder with Ulster Bank, you'll be given a period of time. I think it'll probably be what six months, maybe to to yeah. transfer to another provider. But let's say you don't. Let's say by the time the deadline um, expires or comes around, you haven't yet switched your current account. What happens to that account and the money in it? Yeah, well, it's, it's, what would happen there is that your current account is is closed down and you get a check in the post and you do what you want with that money. Right. Okay. So uh, the advice then, I guess, to us bank customers in particular is to pay very careful attention to notifications coming from the bank and, and to find another provider. And certainly for 
Certainly for, um, for, for, for current account holders, whether you're a business, and if it's your main current account, I mean, a substantial number of, uh, of, of, of a, the current accounts with, with Ulster Bank are held by people who actually have accounts elsewhere. But there's still a significant proportion of those who have used Ulster Bank uh, for, for all of their banking. And certainly they're the ones who would really want to, uh, you know, when they get notification, would want to get moving. All right, we'll leave it there. Joe Brennan, thank you for joining Inside Business. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Simon Carswell about the chances of Irish aircraft lessers getting their planes back from Russia. Back in a few moments. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. This week, the Kremlin retaliated in the ongoing standoff with aircraft lessers over the use of airplanes by Russian operators at a time when the country is subject to severe sanctions from the West. This is a story that's close to home, given that so many of the world's biggest lessors are actually based in Ireland. Simon Carswell has been following the story for the Irish Times, and I began by asking him to explain the implications of this latest move by Russia. Well, it's really escalated things. I mean, we're we're in uncharted territory here for the industry. Um, I think a lot of people in the, in the industry are trying to figure out what's going to happen next, but it seems to be quite incremental the way this is developing. Uh, the EU sanctions were put in place last month after uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And the effect of those sanctions is that the aircraft leasing companies uh, in Ireland and elsewhere had to terminate the leases with the Russian airlines and had to issue them with recovery notices to get the aircraft back. And uh, what we're seeing now is essentially the Kremlin reacting to that. And the latest move by the Russian government was this bill that was signed into law by Vladimir Putin, the president, and what that has done is, is that it's essentially re-registered foreign-owned commercial aircraft onto the Russian um, aviation and aircraft register. And this has kind of followed a move by regulators in both Bermuda and Ireland. A lot of the aircraft that are leased to Russia are actually not registered in Russia, but registered in Bermuda to a large degree, and then some are registered in Ireland. I spoke to the Irish Aviation Authority. They're the regulator here in Ireland, and they said there's about 35 of the leased aircraft in Russia on the Irish register. And what triggered the move in Russia was Bermuda and Ireland, the aviation authorities in both those countries, they suspended the airworthiness certificates. Now, that sounds quite technical, but it's essentially what the regulators do is they in real time get data from uh, the engine manufacturers, from the airline, uh, from the aircraft manufacturers, the likes of Boeing and Airbus. And every time a plane flies, they know exactly where the plane is going. They know the route it takes, the miles, the air miles it clocks up, um, what's happening to the engines. And this is all to guarantee the safety of the aircraft. And so when uh, Boeing and Airbus essentially uh, closed uh, Russia to business, to their business. They lost sight of what those planes and what those engines were doing. And then the regulators in turn said, well, we can't guarantee whether they're safe because we've no insight as to what actually is happening to these aircraft in Russia. And for that reason, we need to suspend the airworthiness certificates. In response to that, the Kremlin said, well, we're going to re-register these 
on foreign owned, uh, the foreign owned planes on our register to allow them to kind of approval for for safe flying, but only within Russia. So it's really um, what's happened is what's materialized is that a lot of what the industry had feared is playing out. Russia is essentially re-registering these aircraft so they can continue flying on domestic routes. And it really puts a huge obstacle in the way of all these aircraft leasing companies to be able to get these aircraft back anytime soon. So it's really, really complicated. And it's essentially Putin responding to the EU sanctions saying, well, if you're going to seek the recovery of the airlines, we're going to stop that and we're going to allow our airlines, the likes of Aeroflot, the state-owned airline and other airlines to continue flying these foreign-owned planes within our own jurisdiction. So about uh, 500 aircraft are owned by foreign leasing companies and rented to Russian operators. About two-thirds of those aircraft are leased by Irish companies. So talk to us about the exposure of these Irish-based companies, Uh, Simon. Aircap is the world's largest aircraft leasing company and it's based in St. Stephen's Green in Dublin. Tell us about their exposure. Well, it's significant. And the Irish airline uh, aircraft leasing industry is very much exposed to this crisis. Aircap, as you say, is the most exposed. It's about 152 aircraft leased to Russian and Ukrainian airlines. The value of those is about two billion. Now, in the overall scheme of things, it's it's small uh, uh, relative to their overall overall fleet. It's less than 5% uh, of their fleet. Uh, I mean, it's still a significant amount of money, but uh, in, in relative terms, it's not huge for the company. The second most exposed is SMBC Aviation Capital. That's the Japanese-owned uh, aircraft lesser, and they have a 34 aircraft uh, affected by this. They're va- it's valued at about 1.2 billion euro. And then the third most exposed is Avalon, um, the second largest aircraft leasing company in the world. And they they had, when the war broke out, they had 14 aircraft. Now, they did manage to get one aircraft back that had, it was uh, located at an airport in Turkey at Istanbul, and they were able to repossess that. Um, But the exposure is very, very significant. And all these companies are trying to figure out what's going to happen next. Um, None of them are commenting about this latest move. Um, we are. We do know that they had issued termination notices to the Russian airlines uh, in compliance with the EU sanctions. But under those sanctions, they have until March 28th to terminate all the leases and try and recover the planes back. But the second part of that, the recovery of the planes, is is almost next to impossible at this stage, given what's happening. So we know that peace talks are underway between Ukraine and Russia. And we've been given the sense over the past couple of days that there might be some progress being made and that perhaps a peace deal could be coming. So I don't know if you know, you know, what are the steps then uh, from, let's say, a peace deal is agreed in the coming couple of weeks, maybe. Do EU sanctions get lifted or do they remain in place? Have the aircraft leasing companies any better chance of uh, reclaiming these aircraft uh, as a result of a a peace deal or, or are they gone forever? Well, it's very hard to say. I can't see sanctions being lifted anytime soon. Um, even if there's a peace deal, um, maybe as part of the deal, the sanctions may be lifted as part of an incentive to try and encourage a peace deal. But uh, what's really happened in the last few days is that the Russians have thumbed their nose at international agreements. I mean, the, there's two international agreements that cover the aircraft le- leasing industry. And with this latest move, Russia has essentially torn up those agreements or their party, their party to the to the agreements. There's the Chicago Convention, 
which was a treaty created after the Second World War and that governs international aviation. And under that under that law, you're not allowed to allowed to register aircraft on two uh, in two different countries. So in on each of the each country's register. So by Russia putting. Uh, these foreign-owned aircraft on their register, they're in breach of that agreement. Um, and they're also in breach of the Cape Town Convention. This is the treaty designed to kind of provide comfort to lessers around jurisdiction risks so that if they needed to repossess an aircraft in another country, they could do so. So Russia is again in contravention of that international agreement. And the net effect of what Russia is doing is it's essentially sealed itself off from the international market and all these conventions which are there to protect leasing companies to be able to cross borders to get aircraft back all of that have been thrown out so it really leaves um, the industry in a very very difficult situation and it's very very hard to see what happens next uh, for for those aircraft lessers you said that they're not commenting but i mean aircraft is a listed company isn't it how come uh, it hasn't put out a notice to the markets or it hasn't perhaps informed analysts as to the, uh, uh, you know, as to the likely situation here, whether it's going to take a write-off or not. Um, we, I mean, we've just had no word. Why, why is that? I mean, that's a really good question. I know they have results, uh, they have results out at the end of the month, so they're, they're going to be forced to have to say something about the current situation on that. Um, so far, they, they have only said that they will be terminating the leases and that they will be in compliance with the EU sanctions and they've given given some details of the exposure to this with the less than 5% of the of the fleet being affected but they definitely are going to need to say something i guess what we're looking to see in particular is if these aircraft are stuck in russia then what reaction do what what reaction does this result in with the aircraft leasing companies this essentially results in a potentially results in a um, the largest mass default by the industry. So that has impact uh, for them on their financial obligations, on their banks and the letters of credit and what happens there. And if there are defaults, then it follows, well, the companies have insurance and so they'll be looking at their war risk protection within those insurance policies for all those planes to see exactly what they can do in terms of uh, if there are write-offs, and we're talking, there's about $10 billion in total in relation to foreign lessers connected to Russia, about €4 billion Euro for, for Irish companies. So those are significant sums of money if they are claiming um, uh, losses and write-offs uh, a bit against um, uh, on, insurance, on insurance policies. And then that in turn, if the insurers uh, challenge those, that could end up in very complex litigation. So... It's a kind of multifaceted story. There's still the fallout is still you know, people are still trying to figure out uh, this hasn't happened on this scale before. So uh, as I say, it's uncharted territory for a lot of these companies as to try and figure out what's going to happen next. And the other complication, and I think this is where it gets tricky for Russia, is the aviation industry relies on uh, regular maintenance. Parts are required every four to six weeks. Um, there's checks required on aircraft. And so if Russia is flying these Boeing and Airbus aircraft and they require parts and Airbus and Boeing aren't trading with Russia because of the sanctions, then that creates problems for the Russian airlines in terms of making sure that these planes can continue flying and remain in the skies. So that's a challenge for Russia. And I think the industry is hoping that that might you know, force the Russians to have a think about what they're doing here. And then there's the wider problem is if once this war is over, 
does the industry uh, blacklist Russia? Does Russia want to become a pariah in the international finance and international aviation markets? Um, and so it needs to be conscious of what it's doing here for the future, for a post-war situation. Uh, and Russia won't want to be frozen out of the international aviation sector. Well, it's hard to imagine that the aviation sector will have a large appetite to lease aircraft to Russian airlines whenever this war is over and, and, and they're allowed to do that again. You know, given what's happened here and given the potential we hear all the time about the potential for Russia to perhaps move against other neighbouring countries. Well, exactly. And if you look at the um, Russian airline fleet, there's about a thousand aircraft in Russia and almost 780 of those jets are leased from uh so it's a it's a problem for for Russia itself now you could say well Russian airlines aren't going to be doing a lot of international flying at the moment because um uh, European airspace has been shut off to Russian airlines but it, I think after this crisis passes whenever that might be Russia will need to be aware of that situation and you're absolutely right I think uh, international aviation um I think international finance won't want to touch Russia after this, given its behaviour currently and what it's doing. And if it escalates this further, if it goes, and what many in the industry fear is that if they just seize ownership of these aircraft, which looks like what they appear to be going, where Putin appears to be going with this, then um, there's going to be real problems for Russia in the future. Uh, and it, it's very much been seen in the industry as as retaliatory action um, against foreign lessers in response to what is happening with the Russian oligarchs and the seizing of a lot of their removable assets, these super yachts that have been seized. This is seen as a direct retaliation by Russia to that those actions. So long term, I think Russia is going to find itself frozen out if its behaviour uh, deteriorates in this and it takes further action against uh, foreign owned uh, aircraft and the, the, the owners of those aircraft. And finally, Simon, is there any role to be played for the Irish government in this, um, even through the European Commission, perhaps? Well, we have had a statement from Aircraft Leasing Ireland. That's the industry group um, that represents the aircraft lessers in Ireland. And they have said that they are working with the Irish and EU authorities um, trying to figure out if there's a kind of government solution. But I think government is very much aware of the problems that are facing the aircraft lessers on this. Um, given just what a crisis it is in terms of Russia and the relations with um, with Western, both governments and companies, I think it's going to be extremely difficult to find a solution even at government level. So I think for a lot of the aircraft lessers, it's a watch and see what happens next. And I think the next big move that they're all watching for is if there is some sort of um, requisition of title where Russia moves against the foreign-owned companies and actually takes ownership of these aircraft. And that would be a very significant event and trigger all sorts of actions uh, in the West in response to that. So that would be the kind of doomsday scenario for the industry that they will be watching for and fearing that might happen uh, as the next step in this uh, sorry saga. And the insurance element uh, is interesting. Do you know, for example, because EU sanctions have been put in place, whether that negates any insurance policies, whether that gives an out for the insurer, if you like? Well, I think what you're going to see now is uh, the companies reading the small print with their insurers and looking at the policies and seeing what exactly is covered under the war risk protection. Uh, you know, this is kind of it's decades since they had to be worried about this kind of thing. So uh, you're going to see some of the major insurers uh, and also the companies consulting each other. And there is a fear that this will result in litigation because the sense in the industry is 
is the insurers will run for the hills and won't want to be caught with this kind of exposure. And as I say, this exposure is significant. It's €4 billion in terms of the Irish industry. And worldwide, it's in the order of about $10 billion. So insurers will not want to be paying the bill for this. But you can be pretty sure that there's going to be lawyers, financiers, aircraft industry executives looking very closely at the detail of these insurance policies over the coming weeks, particularly if Russia escalates the action and seizes control of these aircraft. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out and presumably some of it will play out in the Irish courts if it does go to litigation. Well, I think it will because um, you have a lot of both the debt financing is done through Dublin um, and also a lot of the contracts are done through Dublin. But also it's going to be a very complicated international story too. There's a lot of aircraft registered in Bermuda, as I said. Um, there's a lot of uh, international investors. You know, The Japanese are investors in this through their Dublin company. So you're going to see cross-border transnational litigation on this. It's going to be extremely complex and it's going to be very, very technical. And it's going to take some time to figure out what the actual fallout is from this and also who foots the bill. All right, we'll see how it plays out, Simon. You might come back to us uh, in the weeks or months ahead and give us an update on that. Simon Carswell, thank you for joining Inside Business. Thanks, Karen. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Joe Brennan and Simon Carswell. The show was produced by Suzanne Brennan. Thanks also to our sponsor, EY, for its continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.